This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And this next story is brought to us by a listener, Mike Chapman, who listens to us on 1040 WHO out of Des Moines, Iowa. Abraham Lincoln is one of the greatest leaders in U.S. history, but prior to his being elected the 16th president of the United States, he didn't rely on good looks or fancy speeches to gain popularity. He used his skills as a wrestler to win approval from the masses. Mike Chapman has been writing about and researching wrestling for many years. He is also the author of The Sport of Lincoln, when Abe Lincoln wrestled with Jack Armstrong at New Salem in 1831. Here is Mike Chapman to share this turning point story in Abraham Lincoln's life. Aside from my passion for wrestling, I have long been intrigued by the history of U.S. presidents. That really began to blossom when I was executive editor of the daily newspaper in Dixon, Illinois, which is the hometown of Ronald Reagan. I was the editor there from 1989 to 1998. During that 10-year period, I discovered that Abe Lincoln had actually served in the very same location that is Dixon today. Lincoln served there during the Black Hawk War of 1832. And that fact really inspired me to learn more about Lincoln as a young man, which in turn led me to the little village of New Salem, Illinois. It is located about 200 miles south of Dixon and about 20 miles northwest of Springfield, Illinois. And what a wonderful place that is for any history buff. Abraham Lincoln was born on February 6, 1809 and raised in Kentucky. But when he was seven, the Lincoln family moved to Indiana. He grew into a strapping young man, nearly six foot four inches tall and weighing about 180 pounds. He first strolled into New Salem in 1831 as a 22-year-old looking for a new start in life. And soon he became engaged in an event that was destined to play a very important role in his career. It was called scuffling or grappling, and in modern terms, it is called wrestling. But first, a little background. Wrestling is often called mankind's oldest sport as it is a subject in some of the oldest pieces of literature known to exist. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, composed in ancient Sumer, which today is now known as Iraq, nearly 4,000 years ago, a wrestling contest between Gilgamesh, the king of the large city of Uruk, and a forest giant named Enkidu is an important feature of the saga. In the Bible, as described in Genesis, the Hebrew patriarch Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. After a struggle that lasted all through the night, the angel gave Jacob a new name, Israel, which loosely translated means contested with God. Some of the greatest figures in ancient Greece, such as Theseus, Hercules, and Achilles, the most celebrated hero in the Trojan War epic known as the Iliad, were wrestlers. And there are drawings of wrestlers inside some of the pyramids in Egypt. Wrestling came to the New World with the first colonists back in the late 1600s. It flourished along the eastern seaboard and moved west with the men who carved homes out of the wilderness. And it was popular both as a test of manhood and as a form of entertainment in small villages like New Salem. It also attracted betting, which made it even more popular. 
Today, New Salem is a beautiful state park with over 650,000 visitors a year. It is possible to walk through the main gate and stroll down the same path that a 22-year-old Abe Lincoln traversed in 1831. The village was founded in 1828, and Lincoln lived there for about six years, serving as a surveyor, postmaster, store operator, and rail splitter. It was here that Lincoln got his first taste of politics when he was elected to the Illinois General Assembly. And it was also here in 1831 that the Lincoln legend first began to bloom, thanks to wrestling. Lincoln came to New Salem because he had received an offer from a man named Denton Offutt to work in his little store situated on a bluff near the Sangamon River. They had met some time earlier when Lincoln had worked for Offutt on his flatboat, taking goods down the Mississippi River to sell in New Orleans. Offutt took a liking to Lincoln and told him that he could work for him in New Salem if he ever decided to venture over that way. So now when Lincoln arrived, Offutt was in competition with another store just 40 feet from his. It was run by a man by the name of William Clary. In the summer of 1831, Clary was selling liquor from his store and doing very well. He charged 12 cents for a drink of brandy, gin, or whiskey, and twice that for his best wine. He developed a good and steady business of local customers and visitors from off the river. When river travelers came up the bluff for a break in their journeys, they were looking for a place to drink a bit and swap tails. So Offutt chose to build his store very close to Clary's, and the two men competed for business. Clary's store was at the top of the bluff, about 40 feet in front of Offutt's store. Travelers had to make a choice between them as to which was the best place to spend their small amount of money. Lincoln had impressed Offutt with his wiry strength. Offutt had seen Abe pick up large barrels of whiskey and other bulky items and carry them off with ease. At six feet four and four inches of height and carrying close to 180 pounds of sinewy muscle, he was a very large man for that time. Offutt was a man who liked to talk a lot. He was very proud of his new helper and boasted to William Clary that Abe was the strongest man he knew. But Clary knew a few strong men as well. They were men of a different temperament than Abe Lincoln, loud and belligerent when the liquor took effect. Wrestling was the best way to determine what a man was made of. The bouts in the thick grass between Clary's store and Offutt's store were a regular occurrence in a true frontier style. The ringleader of the bunch was a rugged farmer from nearby Clary's Grove called Jack Armstrong. Shorter than Lincoln, Armstrong was much thicker and heavier. At age 27, he was five years older than Abe. Little is known about Armstrong's wrestling expertise other than the fact that he was considered the roughest of the gang of young men who resided at Clary's Grove and hung out at the Clary's Tavern. And when we continue more of Abe Lincoln's wrestling match that became the turning point in his life, all of this brought to us by Mike Chapman, a listener at 1040 WHO in Des Moines. More of Mike Chapman's story about Abe Lincoln here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and Mike Chapman's story, a listener, about Abraham Lincoln's wrestling match that became the turning point in his life. Let's continue with Mike Chapman. Within a short amount of time from Lincoln's arrival, a match was brewing, and talk soon reached the point that if either man shied away, he would be branded a coward. Tired of Offutt's boasting, Armstrong eagerly accepted the challenge of wrestling Lincoln. Offutt offered to bet anyone $10 that Lincoln would win. Money, drinks, and various items were soon being wagered all around the village. Finally, the two men, Lincoln and Armstrong, met on the grassy area between the stores to settle the talk. As many as 100 men gathered to see the contest, as it was undoubtedly a major source of discussion in the little village and the surrounding area. While Abe had the advantage in height and leverage, Jack had the advantage in experience and attitude. He was undoubtedly a more seasoned grappler and fighter, according to all reports. Now there were several types of wrestling that were engaged in on the frontier. One style was to where the two men agreed to grab a hold on each other and see who could throw who first. What it was, was just a good old fashioned scuffle with each man trying to throw the other to his back and hold him there. It was just two men tugging and pulling each other in an effort to subdue the other. Yes, foot stomping was a frequent tactic, as was hair pulling and thumbing of the face. In 1939, a popular movie called Abe Lincoln of Illinois was made from the Pulitzer Prize winning play of the same name written by Robert Sherwood. In this film version of the story, Lincoln, played superbly by Raymond Massey, tangles with Armstrong, played with gusto by Howard De Silva in a wild affair. It was a dramatic version that certainly looked good on film. Many stories have the match ending with Lincoln on his feet looking down at the defeated Armstrong. The Clary's Grove boys, angry at seeing their best man beaten, advanced on Lincoln, shouting at him and raising their fists. An all-out fight appeared imminent. Lincoln supposedly stood with his back against one of the two stores, fists clenched, and declared that he would take them all on, one at a time, if necessary. However, Armstrong came to Lincoln's side and told his pals that Lincoln had beaten him fairly and that he had proven that he was worthy of their respect. Boys, Abe Lincoln is the best fellow that ever broke into this settlement, said Armstrong. He shall be one of us. The Clary's Grove boys backed off and Lincoln gained a new status in the little village. He was known from then on as a man not to be trifled with, despite his infectious grin and considered good humor. The fact was, it seemed, that Lincoln could defend himself and he gained immense stature due to his wrestling prowess. So the main thrust of the bout could be described like this. Lincoln didn't really want to wrestle Armstrong because he felt it was building up too much as a fight and not strictly a good-natured contest. But when he saw how everyone was talking about the match and making such a big deal, he knew it was bound to take place eventually. It is estimated today that nearly 15,000 books have been written about Abraham Lincoln more than any other figure in history, with the exception of Jesus Christ. And many of these books talk about Lincoln's contest with Jack Armstrong and its impact on his career. The most thorough discussion of Lincoln's wrestling background comes in the book Honor's Voice, The Transformation of Abraham Lincoln, written by Douglas L. Wilson in 1999. The book offers an entire chapter, nearly 32 pages, 
devoted to Lincoln's wrestling prowess, appropriately entitled, quote, Wrestling with the Evidence. Here's the key part. Abraham Lincoln's election to the presidency and his eventual elevation to the pantheon of American heroes have transformed his wrestling match with Jack Armstrong from a rowdy initiation rite in an obscure pioneer village into a notable historical event, end quote. Wilson then quotes John T. Stewart, who knew Lincoln as well as anyone, and brought him into his law firm in Springfield after Lincoln left New Salem. Quote, this was the turning point in Lincoln's life, Stewart claimed after the death of his longtime friend, talking about the wrestling match. As a fitting end to the New Salem wrestling match story, Lincoln became friends with the Armstrong family and often visited the little cabin in the months after the match with Jack. Jack's wife, Hannah, even knitted some shirts for Abe, and Abe would babysit sometimes rocking the cradle of their young baby. Lincoln left New Salem after six years and moved to Springfield where he began his law career. Years later, he even defended Jack's son, Duff Armstrong, in a famous legal case. Jack Armstrong didn't live long enough to see Lincoln win the presidency, dying in 1854 at the age of 50. He is buried in an obscure, out-of-the-way frontier cemetery a mile or two from New Salem, unknown except for his grappling contest with a man who became the 16th president of the United States and arguably the most popular American ever. There are other brief references to Lincoln using his grappling skills after the Armstrong encounter. Some time later, while working in another tiny store in New Salem, a man insulted several women, customers with profane language, and Lincoln asked him to stop. The man persisted and said no one could make him stop. Lincoln challenged him to step outside, flung him to the ground, and stuffed weeds in his mouth until the man surrendered. In August of 1834, while running for the state legislature, Lincoln found the opportunity to show his wrestling skills once again. During that time, he was running for office once again, and this time he was elected to the state legislature. Just as Lincoln was getting ready to speak, a fight broke out in the crowd, and his friend was roughed up. Lincoln jumped off the platform, grabbed his friend's assailant, tossed him a few feet, then strode back to the platform and began his speech. And then there is also a report of Lincoln losing a grappling contest. It occurred during the Black Hawk War years, sometime in the 1831-33 period, and took place in Beardstown, Illinois, a little village about 50 miles west of Dixon. The foe was a man named Lorenzo Dow Thompson, and many years later, in 1860, while running for the presidency, Lincoln himself talked about the struggle in an interview. Lincoln said up to that time he had never been thrown, and neither had Thompson. They squared off, grabbed hold of each other before a large group of soldiers, and struggled valiantly. But Lincoln said he was thrown twice, declaring Thompson was strong enough to whip a grizzly bear and the best man he had ever grappled with. And then there's this fascinating tidbit from the Douglas Wilson book, Honor's Voice. He adds that Abe's mother, Nancy Hanks, liked to wrestle and, quote, in a fair wrestle, she could throw most of the men who ever put her powers to the test. 
So let us conclude with this statement from Wilson's book. Quote, legends by their very nature are not so much factual account as symbolic embodiments or expressions of what the facts represent. In any case, Abe Lincoln's wrestling prowess can best be interpreted as representing Lincoln as a strong, determined, and fearless fellow, ready to take on the task at hand and never shrinking from the ordeal itself. After all, that is what the man known as Honest Abe would want from us, the pure truth, the facts, and nothing else. Abe Lincoln was a wrestler. And you've been listening to Mike Chapman tell the story of Abe Lincoln, the wrestler. Who knew? Who knew? I didn't, and I've read a lot about Lincoln. And, well, some of the books he cited I have on my desk. I have a stack of Lincoln books I still have to read. And you can never stop reading about Lincoln and Washington and some of these great, almost titanic personalities because there's just so much to them. And by the way, Mike spent his life as a newspaper writer and editor in Iowa and also has spent 50 years of his life writing and researching wrestling. He's appeared on A&E Network, ESPN, and the WWE. And again, we want to hear your stories. We're not kidding. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. You just heard Mike Chapman. His story, by the way, because so much of this storytelling, even if it's about Abe Lincoln, we're sort of talking about ourselves and what we care about. And by the way, anytime we're talking about history here on this show, all of those stories are sponsored by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their terrific free online courses. Abe Lincoln and the wrestling match that became the turning point in his life here on Our American Story. stories and we tell stories about all kinds of things on this show and one of our favorites has been our series of talks with Brett Favre about life outside of the goalposts and that's what we do here on this show as often as possible tell the rest of the story and in the main character's voice without interference from us this is the fifth part of a five-part series on Brett Favre and with Brett and this one focuses on living and playing in the small blue-collar city of Green Bay, Wisconsin, and the trials he faced, trials that forced him through the doors of a drug rehab center three times, and the thing that happened twice, which nobody knew. Here's Brett Favre. Throughout my 16 years in Green Bay, things happened. Um, lost my father, my wife got breast cancer, I lost my brother-in-law, 
my uh, stepfather-in-law, I lost him. Um, went through drug uh, rehab for pain pills. And then immediately after that, we won the Super Bowl. So all, I think people were kind of like, yeah, you know, he's one of us. Sometimes you, the, you know, I, I, I too oftentimes, and sh I should know better, I look at someone as um, in a prominent, whether it be professional sports or a politician, an actor. You know, like I, I really like Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. There's not many people I would want to meet. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's probably the only one. If, if I had a chance to meet someone, I'd love to meet Tom. He's, but he seems like just a regular guy. But also, like like everyone kind of said after Kobe died, it's like you know he's not supposed to die. Yeah. And I think people look at athletes and celebrities and politicians sometimes as um, immune to whatever. And of course, that's not the case. And, and so I lived it. Um, and I think being in Green Bay certainly helped because uh, it was a perfect fit for me. Um, I don't think I realized it until several years in that this was tailor-made for me. Not LA, not New York, not Chicago, not all the cities are bigger. Uh, because people could relate to me and I could relate to them. Very similar to to where I grew up and, and not a whole lot different than Hattiesburg other than the climate. You know, just hard working blue collar people. Um, and so I think they could identify with, with me. And I just happened to be their quarterback. So um, it was a perfect perfect fit and I think you know like with Aaron Aaron Rodgers and he's he's a, a, a friend um, they love him because he's their quarterback but they they don't really connect with him and they, they can identify and they can relate to me and um, so you know yeah like with Tony Mandrich and I saw his story I, I was actually my first year in Green Bay he went through training camp and got cut uh, so uh, I got I got a chance to know him, and I, I just remember thinking, what happened to this guy? I remember doing my press conference in 1996, right before. Well, when I got out, it was the day before training camp. But when I went in treatment, I spent 75 days too, because um, I was. Uh, a little bit rebellious. Um, well, I didn't want them. To, they told me everything I needed to do. I had to sign in to go to lunch with the group. And when I finally realized, if I want to get out of here, I better do exactly what they say. That was about 75 days into it. But, it, but anyway, um, I remember the press conference and, and how difficult that was to to announce that I had not only to go to treatment, but for pain pill addiction. Because I had everything going. That was, that, that season ended up being my third MVP season in a row. So I, 
I'd had two previous, and, but it was amidst the, the, just the heart of my addiction. I mean, it, it was at its worst, surprisingly, that I was able to function like that. You know, they play at a high level and sleep maybe an hour a night, uh, taking 15 Viking ES at one time. But it was a great, it, it was great to have it happen in Green Bay where people had compassion. Um, all the things that's happened to me, uh, I was thankful it happened in Green Bay. So, and you know, I mean, being from there, they love, they love their Packers, but they love their people too. Yeah. People ask me, because uh, I actually went three times. Mm -hmm. The first time I went to a place in Rayville, Louisiana, and. It, 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 I couldn't believe when I pulled up to this place. I said, "This is a rehab." I thought it was like some some Sanford and Son type place. <laughs> it was like a little shack, but it was it was good. I stayed there 28 days. I would stop one thing and continue another. So I wanted to drink, but I. I Pain Pills was a 75-day in Topeka, Kansas, at Miniger Clinic. The Rayville, Louisiana was prior to all that, and that was for pain pills. But I wasn't ready to stop. And I, the league didn't make me go. I went voluntarily, even though my arm was twisted. I'd had two seizures in Green Bay. Oh, my. One in the hospital right after ankle surgery after the after the previous season so 95 season and then during the excuse me after the 94 season then the 95 season was the season before we won the super bowl during that season i had a seizure the night before game which people obviously didn't know and uh, that really kind of started the ball rolling like why are you having seizures well i wasn't sleeping so my brain was basically short-circuiting and you just heard a remarkable story a three-time mvp hall of fame quarterback running on one hour of sleep a serious pill habit and suffered two seizures two and no one knew about them. and you're hearing about that for the first time here not because we like breaking news. That's not why you tune in here. But to hear the real story and the real humility, and he's not kidding when he says he's glad he was in Green Bay because this country boy tucked away in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, and the ending would have been much worse. You've been listening to Brett Favre. This is the part five of a five-part series here on Our American Stories in his own words. By the way, Tony Mandarich. What a story. We've done that one, too, in Tony's own words. From the heights of NFL success to drug addiction and worse, and then the rise up. And we love the redemption story here. And we're always rooting for people when they're down, whether they're in a prison or anywhere else. When they're at their low, that's what we love to come in and love on them. And we treat them as if they're members of our own family, just like you would. And... If you have stories like this, they don't have to be some big fancy football quarterback story. Because in the end, that's why people related to Brett. He was like the rest of us. And he is. These people are no different. And we all know that. It's we who treat them different. 
and put them on these statues, and then when they fall, we rip them apart, and it's just so wrong. Send your stories about local heroes, about ordinary folks in town who've, who've dealt their own hard deck, we all do sometimes, and overcome it, or have been handed a hard deck and overcome it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brett Favre's story, a five-party. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and hear all five. You won't stop listening. We couldn't either. Brett Favre's story here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories, and every mid-May through mid-June, we bring you the very best commencement speeches ever given. And this one is from Father Greg Boyle, who in 1986 became the pastor of the poorest Catholic parish in Los Angeles. What he didn't know is that the area also had the largest concentration of gang activity. And this was in a city that was known to be the gang capital of the world. While the criminal justice system treated incarceration as the sole means to end gang violence, Father Greg adopted a radical approach at the time, treat gang members as human beings. His Homeboy Industries is the largest gang intervention, rehab, and reentry program in the world. Here's Father Greg's commencement speech at Pepperdine University. Thank you very much for this kind and generous honor. Uh, President Benton, called me some months ago and he said, Greg, do you believe in free speech? And I said, yes. And he said, good, you're giving one on April 28th. <laughs> you know, I'm an expert on nothing, but for uh, 34 years I've worked with gang members and, and apparently President Benton thought that made me eminently suited to address the class of 2018. <laughs> You know, what Martin Luther King says about church could well be said about your time here at Pepperdine. It's not the place you've come to, it's the place you go from. And you go from here to create a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. In fact, that is God's dream come true. No us and them, just us. You go to the margins not to make a difference because then that's about you. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. It's been the privilege of my life for 30 years to have been taught everything of value by gang members. And, and in the last few years, they've taught me how to text. And so I'm really grateful to them because <laughs> I find it sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people. And, and I'm pretty dexterous at it, uh, LOL and OMG and BTW and... The homies have taught me a new one, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. <clears throat> and I've been using that one quite a bit lately. <laughs> so there I am in a car with two older vatos, Manuel and Poncho, and they do a variety of things at Homeboy. They're going to help me give a talk at a, at a high school. And, 
Manuel's in the front seat, and we're 15 minutes on the road when Manuel gets an incoming text. He reads it to himself, and he chuckles, and I say, what is it? He goes, oh, it's dumb. It's from Snoopy back at the office. Well, i just seen Snoopy. Snoopy gave me a big abrazo as the day was beginning. Snoopy and Manuel work together in the clock-in room where they clock in hundreds and hundreds of gang members who work there. I, it, I would not want this job. It, um, it, this may come as a surprise. Gang members can occasionally be attitudinal. <laughs> so I say, well, what's it say? And uh, Manuel says, oh, it's dumb. Let me find it. Oh, here it is. Hey, dog, it's me, Snoops. Yeah, they got my locked up in county jail. They're charging me with being the ugliest vato in America. You have to come down right now, show them they got the wrong guy. <laughs> well, we died laughing, and, and I nearly drove into oncoming traffic. And then, and then I realized that Manuel and Snoopy are enemies. They're from rival gangs. They used to shoot bullets at each other because I remember. Now they shoot text messages. And there's a word for that, and the word is kinship. How do we obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate? It occurs to universities sometimes, you know, to force uh, their students to read my book against their will. Yeah, I'm not complaining, but well, my alma mater, Gonzaga University, uh, called me and said uh, they, they had forced the incoming freshman class to read Tattoos on the Heart. And so I, you know, uh, I said, sure. And they said, can you bring two homies with you? And, and I said, sure. And they were going to have a big talk on a Tuesday night with 1,000 people. And uh, so I always invite homies in the same way. I pick homies uh, who are enemies, rivals, who work together at Homeboy just to that they have to share a hotel room just to mess with them. And, and I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. Um, once I, I had two homies, we were flying to D.C. and older guys, and one guy said to me, hey, are we flying Virgin Airlines because it's our first time? I said, well, yes, it's, an, it's a requirement. Well, will come home on American. Uh, so I picked these two guys, Bobby, an African-American gang member who worked in the bakery, and Mario, who worked in our mer merchandise store. I've done this hundreds and hundreds of times with men and women. I've never picked anybody more terrified of flying than this guy, Mario. He was just absolutely petrified. In fact, he was hyperventilating. <gasps> and we hadn't even boarded the plane yet. And so we're at Burbank Airport and the big bay windows and Southwest Airlines, they, they, they don't have that hermetically sealed chute where you walk onto the plane, you, you walk out onto the tarmac like you're the president and you climb the steps. And uh, so our plane arrives, it's early morning, and I tell Mario, there, there's our plane. And, <gasps> and I think, wow, he may actually die before we climb those steps. And, uh, and then our, our flight crew arrives, and I see two flight attendants, females, and they both have very large cups of Starbucks coffee, and they're schlepping up the steps. And Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? I said, as soon as they sober up the pilots. <laughs> there, there they go now. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that, but 
Uh, I should tell you that Mario, in our 30-year history at Homeboy, is the most tattooed individual who's ever worked there. His arms are all sleeved out, neck blackened with the name of his gang, head shaved, covered in tattoos, forehead, cheeks, chin, eyelids that say the end, so that when he's lying in his coffin, there's no doubt. And so I'd never been in public with him, and we're walking, and people are like this, and mothers are clutching their kids more closely. And I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy on Monday and ask anybody there who's the kindest, most gentle soul who works there, they won't say me. They'll say Mario. He sells baked goods at the counter at our cafe. He's proof that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. So we uh, get to Gonzaga, and they don't just have the talk at night. They have all these other talks throughout the day, and I tell them, you get up and give those talks. I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. And they were terrified, but they did a good job. Stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse of every imaginable kind that led the audience to stand in awe at what these two had carried in their lives rather than in judgment at how they carried it. So the nighttime talk comes and it's a thousand people and I invite them up to share their stories in front of all these people for five minutes each and I do my thing and then I invite them up for Q&A and, and I said, yes, ma'am. And a woman stands and she says, yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario steps up to the microphone. He's a tall drink of water, skinny, and clutching the microphone. And he's terrified. Yes. And she says, well, you say you're a father and you have a son and a daughter who are about to enter their teenage years. What advice do you give them? What wisdom do you impart to them? And Mario clutches his microphone, and he's just terrified, and he's trembling, and he's getting a hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say. When, when finally he blurts out, I just, and he stops, and he retreats back to his microphone-clutching, terrified retreat. But he wants to get this whole sentence out. I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence until the woman who asked the question stands, and now it's her turn to cry, and she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving, you are kind, you are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand, and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hand, so overwhelmed with emotion that this room full of people, strangers, had returned him to himself, and they were returned to themselves. And I think that's the only praise God has any interest in. Graduates, you go from here to stand at the margins because that's the only way they get erased and you brace yourselves 
because the world will accuse you of wasting your time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. Make those voices heard. And may God bless you as you go from this place. And that's Father Greg Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries. Go to the margins, not to make a difference, because that's about you. Go to the margins to make you different. Only the soul ventilated with tenderness has any hope of changing the world. Father Greg Boyle, what a commencement speech here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And with Father's Day fast approaching, we know that there are some out there listening who haven't had a close relationship with their dad, maybe not a good one, maybe none at all. And whether because of death, fear, irresponsibility, a parent may not be there for their child. Many, like Dave Hammer, fell into destructive patterns because of the absence of a father. And the only way those patterns are broken, well, is generally a shock to the system. Here's Dave to tell us about his life and what it took to set him on the straight and narrow. I was born in... Morristown, New Jersey, uh, 1966. I don't have much of a memory of my childhood. I know that my father left when I was two years old. I was raised by my mom for probably up to seven or eight years old. Don't have much of a memory there. Then my mom, uh, who was a roadie for David Bowie and in Rolling Stones, my stepfather uh, did life, so she actually lived with Keith Richards and uh, David Bowie for a time. She was a heroin addict during that time as well, so I just remember one night saying, you're going to live with Nana, and I remember my sister and I, we went up into the room and tucked us in, and as she's leaving the room, she says, I won't be seeing you for a while, and uh, I just remember uh, just screaming and crying and not understanding what's going on. I remember uh, in the sixth grade living at my grandma's, her leaving, and uh, we lived in a really nice house. It was just my grandma and my sister and I, and uh, she got a brand new car, and I remember she was leaving for the afternoon, and uh, my friend and I thought it would be really cool. She always left the keys in the car. So I remember saying, hey, let's go for a ride. Went to the store charged everything we could on her account without, you know, obviously telling her we're doing this. Came back and just as I'm getting ready to pull in the driveway, you know, went all through town, over the hills, through the neighborhood, speeding and checking out the turbo on the Saab. And just as I'm getting ready to pull it into the garage, boom, I hit the whole side of the garage and took the garage door out. 
You know, I lied to my grandma. You know, it took a few days for her to uh, see the right side of the sob and know that something was damaged. So uh, I remember when all that went down, um, she finally said, you know, I remember having a conversation with my mom. He's out of control. David's out of control and I don't know how we're gonna control him, but we need to do something because I can't take it anymore. He talks back, he's mischief, and I'm scared and I don't know how to handle him. She says, you're going to a boarding school. And my life turned upside down. I didn't know what that meant. I was shipped off to uh, Bath, Maine, a uh, prestigious uh, boarding school for people that, like myself, knuckleheads. I was there for two years. I was a bad kid. I mean, I got in a lot of trouble. I, you know, if there was trouble to be had, my name would be a part of it. It was Thanksgiving. You know, my mom, she wants to make good for herself and try to redeem our relationship. So she said, you don't have to go back to boarding school. So I stayed in Santa Fe and I started my, uh, my freshman year there in Santa Fe. And, um, and uh, that's where my trouble started. I went downhill from there. I, my only way to, to kind of fit in is to start doing drugs, start selling drugs. I got in a lot of trouble there, um, stealing auto theft, robberies. Uh, it was at night and there was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it's all locked up. Well, when you're partying and you need liquor, what do you do? You know, you do anything you can. So I remember driving a vehicle with my friends through the front entrance of a liquor store. I also remember needing money and purse snatching as a bit. I mean, this is, you know, as a very young boy, I'm, I'm, I'm not even, I'm in the ninth grade. My mom, after about six months of that, I come home and she said, I can't deal with you anymore. So she ended up shipping me to Buena Vista, Colorado. And uh, she had a longtime family friend, therapist. So she thought, well, maybe, maybe these people can be the answer to uh, uh, getting Dave's life back on track. I was going to uh, Buena Vista High there for a while. And, um, and at this point, I'm, I'm stealing checks. I'm stealing checks from the folks that I'm staying and I'm forging their name and I'm cashing them so I have money to buy pot, you know, partying, always trying to make a, uh, uh, an impression on the older kids, you know, wanting to feel loved and accepted. Uh, one night we broke into Young Life, uh, which is a Christian organization up in Buena Vista. We went in there, we were skinny dipping and they had high-end stereo equipment. I stole all the stereo equipment, climbed the rafters, stole all the equipment, and uh, um, I came back to my house, and uh, the next morning the police were there, um, and uh, they arrested me, and they took me um, to uh, Zeb Pike at the time. So uh, who gets back involved in my life? Because she's obviously your legal guardian is my mother. So uh, my mom comes to, to court. Uh, the judge asked her, would you like to take your son home? And she uh, shut the door on me. She said, no, he's uncontrollable. I don't want him home.
And so um, I ended up going to the state hospital for evaluation. They wanted to send me directly to the Department of Corrections for, I think it was four years. And um, I begged my attorney, said, look, I'm, you know, it's not something I want to do. You know, I'm a terrified little, you know, teenager, you know, just trying to have some fun. You know, not knowing what this, you just, you just don't, you don't realize what the consequences are going to be when you are doing things. You just know you're having fun. When I was there, after time, you get, it's a lockdown, it's a lockdown facility. And uh, when I was there, man, I saw, I mean, there's some crazy people, literally crazy in there. I was the only one that didn't have to get on medication. Um, everyone else, you gotta line up, take your meds. I mean, it's like a psych ward, a hardcore psych ward. And so um, I really, uh, there, was a, there was a gal there. She was a counselor there that worked that just fell in love with me and took me under her wing. And I would go to her home and hang out with her and her family. First time I really ever experienced what family's like. And you know, no matter what you did, um, they just love on you. She kind of talked a little bit about Christ then, because I never had, I, I never had, I never, I don't even recall going to church um, when I was a kid. Um, my parent, I think my grandma, they were Catholic, but we didn't go to church. Um, and so, you know, told me a little bit about Christ and God, and you could see something different in these people. You could see something different. Something was just not normal for a family like this and how they treat you and how they act and how they talk. And so I thought, you know, I want, I want some of that. And so um, I would make regular visits to them. Uh, you have to defend for yourself. And I was a good looking, good looking, uh, you know, kid, teenager. Um, and I just remember, um, I remember getting beaten up there really bad. And um, I said, this is never gonna happen again. And I, uh, I uh, filled up a pillowcase with soda cans and um, went into the room and um, nearly killed somebody there. Broke their jaw, their face, knocked out all their teeth because I didn't want to be punked on anymore. And they shipped me off and I was incarcerated by myself for six months. When they said, hey, we're going to put you in a placement, we want to, uh, it's time for you to get out and obviously you can't go out on your own. Um, you're too young. And so we need to find kind of like a halfway house. And I heard about all these different placements, but somebody said, um, you know, the place to go is Dale House. And they had a very long list and it was very difficult to get in there. And, um, you know, it was DYC kids, uh, Department of Youth Corrections is what DYC was. And so um, uh, my time was up and they came and interviewed me and they said, all right, we got you in the Dale House. The idea is to take the kids in and they're all 16 to 18, to put them through a program, help them to get their GED, to get them back on track you know, get therapy, get, you know, some family transition going on, get family back involved. However, that wasn't an option for me because my mom was a basket case and she was nowhere to be around. My dad I haven't seen since I was two years old. I did monthly groups and things like that. And uh, 
There's a counselor there that is a good friend of mine today. It was his first day there. He was upstairs supervising me giving a mohawk to one of the kids there. And I remember the director of it, he almost losing his job, just screaming at him, how do you expect this kid to go out and get a job and be a decent member of society? So that night we had this group and, and, and one of the uh, therapists there came back to me and he said, well, your problem is your mom is effed up in the head. She doesn't give a rat's tail about you and that's the mild version. You just use people like ashtrays, get what you want and that's why you're effed up in the head. I told him where to go park the car, and I, I just ran out of the room, so went to the family that I was originally with when I was in the state hospital, and uh, stayed there for about four or five days. She finally called the director, who's a father to me today. He came down, he said, man, Dave, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry what my brother did, and uh, he was wrong to talk to you that way. Um, I love you, man, and I want you to come back to my program. Um, I know you've been through an awful lot in your life, and um, I just want to let you know I love you. God loves you. He will never abandon or leave you, even though I didn't know much about it. He's just telling me, and I will never, ever leave you and abandon you. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what happens at this program. I love you, and I want you to come back. And I just melted like wax, man. I was like, no one's ever talked to me that way. And so I came back, started doing really well there, and started, I started really accelerating in the Dale House. We'd do things like family night on Wednesday night. Uh, every night we would sit as a family, big old table with probably 25 people around it. I, I never knew what family was like. So um, I excelled real well there, and part of the program is you have to work and you have to get X amount of money. I uh, made a lot of money really quick because um, I, I got into construction. The gentleman that I was telling you about that supervised me giving a haircut, he had a cabinet shop. I went and worked for him. He took me in, started working at the cabinet shop while I was at the Dale House, and he was an employee there teaching cabinetry. So I learned how the trade of building things. Um, so I learned the construction phase really, really quickly there. I got caught several times at the 18 bars. They'd have to come get me and say, Dave, you know, you can't go in there. And um, I was on probation, obviously. When you, when you leave being incarcerated, you're on probation. So I was on probation. Uh, I remember uh, several times uh, being picked up from the bars saying, and it was the same gentleman again, Dave, you can't go there. Most of the time you would have been shipped back, right? For that kind of behavior. I love you, I'm never gonna leave you. Uh, you know, if you can show me some, that you're working in the right uh, direction, then I'm gonna show you that I'm gonna stick with you. I finally got out. Um, it was about nine months after I graduated, but once I got caught one more time at, at the bar, my probation officer took me back to court. Um, and his recommendation was that I do another two years of time. Uh, the gentleman at the Dale House went against his wishes and says, that's not the place for David to be. It's not gonna do him any good. He's thriving here, he's doing well. He made some bad choices. He showed grace, a lot of grace. And grace is given for free. And so um, he was really Christ-like for me the whole time that I was in, in that project. I got out in 1986 is when I got out of there. 
and um, I was doing well. I started doing some construction. I kept um, I kept in contact with the guys there on a regular basis. I was still on probation, and uh, I remember being out. When I got out, I did a lot of partying. I uh, thought, you know what? I can't purse snatch anymore. I can't drive my car through a liquor store. I can't. Um, I can't do armed robbery. Um, I can't. Um, I can't hurt people. I don't want to do anything that is really going to get me back into jail. Um, but you know what? I can party and have fun and and uh, drink and smoke some weed. And I I uh, messed around with cocaine. I remember talking to my counselor at uh, at the Dell House, the one that taught me how to uh, build cabinets and, and do things like that. So I thought he gave me an opportunity to see if I wanted to just stay at the shop there on Elkton Drive in Colorado Springs and and start working and, and kind of doing my own thing. And I thought, yeah, this would be great, man. You know, I'm, I'm 18 years old and, and I think I can do this. I thought this would be great and I, a great opportunity. So. Um, I started bird, uh, building some bird cages. I mean, we're talking big bird cages for, you know, a whole 20 or 30 birds. And so I was there one night. Um, I met my uh, met a girlfriend, and uh, she was living with me. I said, "Let's go back to work. I need your help." And so I went back to work that night, and um, we're building these cages. And I asked her to lift up a big countertop for me, and. Uh, she dropped the countertop. It was not right for me to even ask her. It was way too heavy for her. I broke the formica, broke it all. So it's like, oh, I got to start from scratch again. So um, I just said, that's it. Already having an anger issue. Um, I remember um, just shutting the lights off and going. It was January 12th in 1987. I get back on the freeway and I get off on Uenta, heading east on Uenta. And his car pulls up on the side of me. I look over at him. I'm in a truck, okay, nice truck. And I come over at him. I look over at him and they're looking and talking smack and all that. And you know, I didn't have a lot of patience for that. And I thought, you know, who are these little punks? You know, there's three of them in the car and um, the gal that was with me at the time said, just keep your mouth shut, don't do it. Just keep your mouth shut. And I said, I just want to go out there and just, you know, drill them. And so we kept going and we got, there's three stoplights and we, uh, by the time we got to the other one, the guy rolled down the window, the passenger and said, you know, yelled at a bunch of profanities at me and called me a little punk and like a little, uh, uh, another word, what am I going to do? And, you know, like I'm a little sissy sitting there with my girlfriend and not doing so when we got to the intersection of Uenta and um, Uenta and Palmer Park, I got around them in my truck. I just hiked, I just passed them real fast. When we got to the stop sign at Uenta and Union, I slammed on the brake, I jumped out, ran over the passenger. The driver's side punched the driver's side, when busted the window out, went to grab him, rip him out of the, rip him out of the, the seat. I didn't even want him to open the door. I was, I was furious at that point jumped out of the, of the car, big, big guy, the passenger. And I remember, I just wanted to have at it anybody that was near me. I just wanted, I was in kill mode at that point. You know, blacked out, um, kill mode. And um, 
I remember he jumping out and I ran over there and he pulled out a 357 and pointed and said, you feel like dying today, MF'er? Uh, and, and I said, what are you gonna do, shoot me? I, you know, when you're angry and you lose it, I, I've seen a lot of trauma in my life. Is this kid gonna really shoot me? You know, and so I'm, uh, pulled the trigger, I remember watching a little fire come out at the end of that. And I felt like I flew back in the back of my head and I felt like I was flying through the air and I like landed in my head. But I just remember just loud ringing noise. And I remember, oh man, I can't breathe. And, um, and they took off and ran me over, ran my legs over in, in the car. It was a, it was a stolen car. Uh, the gun was stolen and they were on, um, they were on probation. And so I remember lying there and the gal gets out that I was with and she's screaming. I just remember, you know, I remember hearing like when you shoot an animal and you go hunting, it's got a death call. Like it's dying. It's got a death scream. But she was like screaming this death scream. And I was choking on my blood. I couldn't move. And I said, I was just lying there. And I said, um, I can't breathe, you know, I can't, I can't breathe. Where's my arms and my legs? I couldn't feel my arms and legs. I was in, I was in spinal shock. I thought my arms and legs got blown off because I, I, I felt nothing and I couldn't breathe. I remember her grabbing a jacket and she lifted up my, oh man, this is traumatizing talking about it. And uh, she, she uh, lifted up my head and put it in a jacket. I said, Lord, please don't let me die like this. Please don't let me die. And she's screaming, somebody help me, you know, and I'm, I'm dying. I can't breathe. I'm telling her, tell my mom I love her. And, you know, I'm sorry for everything I put my family through. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm just over and over. I just lied there and just said, after that, I said all that, and I mean, she is wailing. I mean, she's wailing. And, uh, and I just said, Lord, please don't let me die like this. Please, Lord, please don't let me die like this. I will change my life. Please don't let me die. And I remember um, police officer come up, Steve Ladden was the first one on the scene and another cop here in town uh, that were associated with Dale House. I mean, you can't even make this up. Uh, there was a nurse there that pulled up behind me. They cut me open right there and, and put a trach in me. I was a block away so I could breathe. Um, I remember loading me up in the ambulance there and um, I'm just, I'm just uh, terrified that I'm dying. I just over and over, Lord, please don't let me die like this. I must have said it a thousand times. And so um, after that, I just, I, I don't remember the first two weeks in the hospital. It was a 357 gun with a 38 round. It went in, ricocheted around, blew my spinal cord apart. I knew I was paralyzed, you know, I, I knew it right away. I knew when I got in the ambulance and laying on the ground, I'm paralyzed. And I was just asking God to save my life. Just, just save my life. That's all I wanted. I didn't care what condition I was in. I just wanted to save my life. And um, I told him, I said, I'll change my life forever. You know, um, just please change my life. And I didn't really, I didn't know God. So when I'm in the hospital there, 
you know, back in the day, you get the believers that are coming in and praying over you. I didn't have a church because I didn't go to church. So there, I'd have several people come in and just pray over me and say, you know, Dave, uh, the Lord says, you know, by your stripes, he's healed and he can heal you. And if you believe, if you accept him into your heart, and you believe he's going to heal you before you get out of this hospital. Well, I got to thinking, man, I want to get healed before I leave this hospital if I start believing and, and ask him to come into my heart. So I was in that mode. And I remember them putting me on a striker bed. And a striker bed is this skinny board. They strap you to this board. And because my infection was so bad, I, I was going to opera. I, I must have had 27 operations within a nine month period while I was at Memorial Hospital in uh, ICU. Nine months! And they would rush me to surgery because of the fevers and on the brink of death several times. You know, I'm paralyzed now, I can't move, I don't know what my life's gonna be. I beg, beg this man, beg this man to put a pillow over my, my face and just let me go home and be peaceful. I said, I just wanna go home with my grandma. That's just what I wanna do, I just wanna go home with my grandma. And so I got out of there um, and they sent me up to Craig Hospital. When I got to Craig Hospital, um, I was really angry at God, because I'm not healing, man. Don't don't tell me about God. Don't tell me about somebody, somebody that you know is kind and loving and is a healer and can heal me, and he's not healing me. And you told me he was going to heal me. You told me he was going to heal me. I started believing, and he didn't heal me. I was pretty angry. I didn't want anything to do with God. They said I was ready to go to rehab. When I get up there, I couldn't drink. I couldn't swallow, I couldn't eat because I had a hole in my esophagus. Anything that went down there would have gone into my lungs and killed me. So I had a stomach tube for basically 14 months. They just fed me through the stomach tube. So finally, they, when they got up there, you know, they said, you're ready for rehab. When I got up there, they took an MRI and my whole neck was infected. I had osteomyelitis in my bone. I couldn't, they put me on bed rest for 30 days. I couldn't move in traction for 30 days because they said, you're on the brink of dying. You move the wrong way, you're going you're gonna to die. So they had to wait for this, you know, for some, some, some things to line up before they could go in and infuse my neck and then sew up my esophagus. So I was there for about nine months. Um, and the gal that was with me at the time of my shooting was the only one that I had in my life besides the two people from the Dale House that would religiously come visit me and spend hours with me um, at the hospital. It was the only people I had. She would come back and forth to um, from Colorado Springs to Denver. And um, so she told me, I'm pregnant. My son was conceived the morning of my accident. So that gave me hope. That gave me hope. I had something to fight for now. I never had a dad that came to my baseball games and my hockey games to cheer me on like all the other dads. I didn't have any of that when I was growing up. When I find out my son, I started fighting. I was fighting, and when I say fighting, fighting to get myself ready, fighting to get through the rehab, fighting to live a life, uh, fighting to be a father that I never had in his life, and I was, 
going to make sure that this disability didn't triumph over me. Uh, we ended up getting married in the hospital there at the chapel. And um, I got out and uh, that was a challenging time. You know, not being, I was very weak. I was really angry with my accident being shot and I had a lot of anger issues. And um, I pushed her away and she ended up leaving after we got married a couple years later. And um, I moved into another uh, uh, place and it was my son and I and uh, he would go back and forth between his mom and I. I went to school in, uh, at, at Pueblo uh, University of Southern Colorado because I was going to get a degree in social work. I wanted to give back to the community what the Dell House gave me. I wanted to work with knuckleheads like myself. Um, and I wanted to invest in their lives the way they invested in my, my life. I, uh, I started going to school at night and uh, my professor there, she had her PhD in social work, she come up to me and, how do you do it? Where do you get your strength? I said, wow, it's my son. So she said, um, I'm having, we're having a 4th of July party. I'd like you to come to the 4th of July party. So I went there on the 4th of July. I met a man by the name of um, David Henderson who is a pastor of a local Presbyterian church here. And uh, he apologized. He apologized to me right off the bat for what the Christians had done and promised me while I was in the hospital. He says, you know, we live in a fallen world and accidents do happen. Wow, what a difference, man. What a difference. So. He met with me once a week. Um, I started going to his church. And so um, I gave my life to Christ about a month later after that meeting I had with David Anderson. I'm finally working at this child placement agency and um, I'm meeting with kids there. And, um, and I, uh, my counselor from Dale House, he says, man, he says, you ever you ever wonder about your dad? I said, yeah, I, I wonder about him. You know, I, would you ever like to get reunited back into his life? And um, I said, yeah, of course, I'd love to see my dad. And um, we went out to the movies that night. We saw Speed, the movie. I remember it. We saw Speed. And he, we talking more about that. He said, you know, let's, let's pray that your dad can come back in your life, that you can find your dad. We talked about that for a while. So when I get home, so, you know, back then he had the answering machine. He pushed the button, pushed the button. I had, I remember, four missed calls or four messages. So the first one is, um, the first one is my mom. She at uh, least, Dave, you got to call me right away. I need to talk to you right now. Dave, please call me. And I'm thinking, oh, great. What, what did she do? My mom's, you know, off the deep end. What does she got to tell me or what, what is she sharing with me? Second one is, hi, honey. Please call me, it's an emergency. So I'm, then now I'm starting to get freaked out. Real short. Third one is, Hello, David. This is Jerry Wolfbauer, your father. And just melt like wax right there. We're just praying about it. This is Jerry Wolfbauer. Here's my number. Would you please call? 
well, what do you do? You know, you're talking about this, you're praying about it. Next thing you know, I mean, come on, man, it's not even 24 hours. You know, we just got out of the movie. The fourth one is, hi, David. This is Jerry Wolfbauer again. Here's my number. I really, really, really would like to hear your voice. And so I called my mom back and, mom, what have you done? And she's telling me, oh my God, I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I searched everywhere. I searched everywhere in Long Island, I, I, New York, everywhere. And I finally found a Wolf Bauer and I called it. And it just happened to be your dad. And he answered. And, and so I called him back and uh, we call, talked on the phone for about um, an hour and a half, two hours. And um, it was just a week later, my dad came out and visited me and we just embraced and hugged and yeah, at that time, he was a new Christian. He was going to Promise Keepers. And back then, Promise Keepers are big on men and fathers and the fatherless. And he cried out for God to restore his relationship with his kids. Uh, a month later, moved in with me. Got out of the real estate there, gave up his life here to come out here and have a relationship with me. And when he came to the door, I remember he came to the door. I had a little son, you know, three years old. And he said, Grandpa, and he melted, he, he lost it. He completely lost it, my dad. And uh, we all lost it together, you know, not only dad, but grandpa. You know, when you get, when your heart's in the right place, it doesn't mean life's not a, a, a challenge. There's challengers. I remember this, there's two things. There's somebody that's always got it worse than you. The only disability in life is a bad attitude. And that stuck with me forever. The only disability in life is a bad attitude. And that goes a long way. And you've been listening to Dave Hammer. And my goodness, what a life story. And from lovelessness to love, from the absence of a father to the presence of a father. And these two men, their separate faith walks, bringing them back together if the father hadn't done that promise keepers mission and sought that redemption and that connection with his own son. And that's not an easy call to make when you've been an absent father all your life. And what a call to hear. But again, if you don't have the right heart, well, you could be mad at that dad for reaching out. And I just can imagine I would really, really, really like to hear your voice. And you're listening to Dave Hammer, his own story and his own words, a boy, well, just out of control. And it happens every day all around us. And my goodness, we spend a lot of time talking about the father privilege because it is the distinctive privilege that separates so many of boys headed on the right path and those that aren't. And pretty much everybody knows this now. You're getting an agreement across political orthodoxies and every other way. When we can solve our father problem, we can solve our boy problem in this great country. And my goodness, what a different human being Dave Hammer is. His life on a very different trajectory. The only disability in life is a bad attitude. And my goodness, if that's your line of thinking going ahead, and if you have faith in something bigger than yourself, whatever it is, it's about meaning and purpose. And Dave Hammer, finally, he's found both in his son, his father, and his family, and his faith. Dave Hammer's story, a real beauty here on Our American Story.